We are incredibly excited to welcome John Ginoli to the latest episode of No Wristbands, We Drink for Free. I've been friends with John since before he formed his first band, The Outnumbered, back in Champaign, Illinois in the 1980s. Of course, he later went out to California and put together the seminal gay punk rock band, Pansy Division. On his recent visit to Chicago, we got a chance to talk to John about all that history, including his experience opening for Green Day, as well as what the future looks like for Pansy Division. As always, thanks for listening. All right, we are back again. We are No Wristbands, We Drink for Free. We are here today with John Ginoli. How are you? Hi, I'm good. All right, nice to meet you. John is a longtime friend of Papa and Bruce, uh, dating back to their days at U of I. We're talking like 40 years. Yes. Longer than I've been around, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, But you might know him from The Outnumbered, or you might know him from Pansy Division. So uh, I always like to start off with, like, how'd you get into music? Just being a record fanatic and a... uh, kid who was glued to the radio as a little kid. Um, in 65, I I had my parents' radio, and I just started listening to it every day. And I was in Peoria, but I could get WLS, so that was what I listened to growing up, WLS AM. And um, I loved music. It was the first thing I really loved in life. And always wanted to be in a band, and uh, eventually it took a long time, but I did get there. Yeah, yeah. Um, gotta love when when music just moves you, and you're like, I gotta get more of this. I gotta see where I'm going here. Uh, so then you end up in Champagne, and you're in the band The Outnumbered. Uh, how do you feel like Champagne slash Urbana? I don't ever want to shortchange Urbana. Impacted uh, The Outnumbered's development. What happened in, as we call it, CU, (laughs) was that um, I went to college in 78, and I knew that I wanted to be on the college radio station. I knew they had one at U of I. So uh, I got involved with that. First week, I got to school and eventually got to be a DJ on the air. And right around the time that I got to be on the air, end of 79, there was this local band called the Vertebrates who had um, original songs that were really great and combined. Uh, they weren't a punk band, but they were influenced by punk and they played a lot of 60s stuff in a fairly aggressive style. But they were a melodic band and they they did originals and covers and became wildly popular. Um, they never made an album. There was a posthumous album that I actually put together for them in 2011. Oh, wow. But they had um, existed, they existed until 82, and then they broke up, 83. And um, they were really the inspiration for me to be able to see that, oh, you can play original music in this town and people will listen to it. And um, I recently went to see if there were any Vertebrat songs on Spotify and... uh, Apple Music, and there's one, which is on a Mm -hmm. compilation of champagne bands that the Numero Group put out. Um, So you can hear the Vertebrates, Diamonds in the Rough. Go listen to it. It's a great song (laughs) Mm -hmm. from a single they put out in 81. Uh, So then you, during this time, you know, you had your own fanzine hoopla, right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, when I was an isolated kid in Peoria getting into punk rock, there were, I think, three of us that were into it back then that I was aware of. Um, 
I started the zine because I was reading magazines like Trouser Press, and I and then there were uh, that was the era of the British early punk zines, and I got a few of those through the mail. And I thought, oh, I could do something like this. So a friend of mine who was also into this music did it. And we just wrote articles about stuff we liked. Um, You know, we wrote about Blondie and the Ramones and Elvis Costello and Devo. And then there were people who ended up following the magazine who contributed other types of articles. Like there was a big series, um, long article about Badfinger. So I was really into punk when when it happened. But I was also really into the, you know, melodic 60s stuff mm-hmm. and garage stuff. So the year zero punk thing, I understood, but I wasn't going to erase the stuff I liked from the past. But it was hard liking music in the 70s. So even in the 70s, so, you know, I started listening to the radio when I was five, in <laughs> 1965. So I think my musical taste sometimes reflects somebody who is a bit older than me mm-hmm. because I got into music really early and was really obsessed. But then in the 70s, I just didn't like stuff as much until punk came along. It must have felt pretty amazing, whether that be in Peoria or, or being at CU. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, to find people like yourself, whether that be uh, just checking out shows, whether that be at WPGU or whether that be just like out in general, what was it like to feel like you found a community or did you feel like you felt found a community? Yeah, although I was... Well, in Peoria, there was only two others. So. <laughs> there were only two others, my friend and her brother. Yes. Um, there were probably others, but I couldn't find them. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I got to college, I started realizing that there were more people... And uh, college radio station wasn't really playing that stuff yet. By another year, they were. And then when I finally got on the radio, I helped tip the balance. So things were... WPGU in Champaign, Urbana was a commercial college radio station with 3,000 watts. It could be heard with a 40-mile radius. So it was an incredibly um, well-listened-to college station. But... Because it was a commercial station, it was a mixture of underground and indie and then commercial stuff. So depending on the DJ, you could hear, you know, White Snake and Led Zeppelin and the Scorpions. Or if you're listening to my show, you'd hear Nick Lowe and the Buzzcocks and uh, the Ramones and Elvis Costello mixed in with the stuff everybody had to play. So I had an appreciation from an early time that you could have an influence on people by sort of mixing it in with the stuff that they were used to, as opposed to, you know, saying, I am just going to play the stuff that I like, <laughs> and and that's all there is to it. So, yes, I, I would play my Van Halen cuts that I had to and Genesis, <laughs> and then I'd, you know, play what I liked. You'd be subversive when you needed to be. I mean, in some ways, it was more subversive to program the Buzzcocks between Van Halen and REO yeah. than to just play a whole hour of punk rock on the radio. CU's very own REO. And, very. And, <laughs> and it was a time where, I mean, college radio was influential, and, yeah. and you had a lot of flexibility to, yeah. to, to do a real show, you know? Um, so it was my experience at the radio station and then having the vertebrates come right. along that made me think, because I'd wanted to have a band since I was a little kid, 
but um, I'd failed at piano lessons and I didn't think that I was going to be able to do it. So I waited until I was 20 to get a guitar. Walk us through that. Like you're 20. Yeah, I mean, like, you, you formed a band and you really, you weren't a musician at the point. No. At that point. But I had ideas. Yeah. And that's something I realized out of punk was that you didn't have to play great. You had to have ideas about what you wanted to sing about and how it was supposed to sound. And, you know, if you were trying to go for something that was really technically accomplished, you would fail. But a lot of what I loved was pretty simple sounding stuff from the 60s, pretty direct. Um, I mean, on the other hand, I liked stuff like Motown, which had a lot of string arrangements and all these horns and background singers and things. So it wasn't just that I was into the stripped down stuff, but I liked the stripped down stuff and I thought this is doable and it's something I can do with my abilities, which did improve to a certain point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that's so admirable to be like, I've never done this thing, but I'm going to go do this thing and nothing's going to fucking stop me from doing this thing. Yeah. That's, 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 that's punk rock, right? But, you know, it's also difficult. How do you find people mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. will agree on that vision? And that's always a problem in a band. I'm looking at the Wilco poster on the wall here, and it's like, look at the changes they went yeah. through mm-hmm. trying to maintain a vision. A band is always, most bands are always going through a process of weeding out members. And that's happened with me and both the bands I've had. So and, and especially when you form a band in a college town, yeah. I mean, generally people, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So how did you go from being like, I'm going to figure this out? How did you get your Pied Piper on and get these people to follow you and, and join and make a band? I wrote songs because that's how you get people interested. If you have something to say, I knew enough chords to be able to write a song. And I thought I had ideas about what you sing about that would be interesting. So that was, you know, it's not going to be interesting to everybody, but it'll be interesting to somebody. So I always felt like I had a concept about what I wanted to do, and then I would try to execute that and say, here's the kind of song I'm writing. Do you like these songs? You know, these are short songs. These do not require, um, you know, a a, a high level of technical achievement, though you want to be able to play them well (laughs) enough. And that was what I set out to do, and I just spent this last weekend in Champaign, where I was uh, down there for this WPGU reunion and uh, college newspaper reunion, where um, you know I got to talk to a lot of the people that I was hanging out at the time when I formed the band, and the outnumbered band, <laughs> and uh, that was uh, really interesting to revisit and now i'm sitting in front of the microphone so a lot of the stuff is pretty fresh <laughs> mm-hmm. uh was there anything that anybody told you that you're like oh yeah that's not what i was going for or like oh that's news to me no no <laughs> well one of the things about champagne urbana at the time is they had enough places to play that would support you know independent-minded bands playing their own music and an audience that would do the same so it's true though it's funny because one of the things that living in Sham, I lived there for 10 years, I stayed after and played in my band, was that we always wanted to get the people who are younger to be able to see shows. And it was just not possible to have all-ages shows or to have an all-ages venue. And that was when the drinking age was 19. Well, actually it was 21, but 
there was a home rule mm -hmm. that champagne was allowed to have 19-year-old drinking. I think the university allowed it to happen, city allowed it to happen so that there would be uh, less unsupervised drinking. <laughs> but I think it's 21 now, and when you've got people who are in college from 18 to 22, that's three-quarters of your audience, of your potential mm -hmm. audience that can't get in to see your shows. So that's always been an issue. How do you get people, how do you get your peers to see something like that? But nowadays, I don't even know if kids in college go to live music. There didn't seem to be live music venues in Champaign anymore. Really? I think there's one, but there used to be several even you know within the last 10 years and they're all gone all the places i had played with pansy division uh they're all gone now were you able to take uh the outnumbered as far as you had planned to did you were you able to get beyond champagne urbana in a way that was satisfying or uh you know what what's your looking back what's your thoughts about the outnumbered we wanted to make records, and we got to make three of them, so that was successful. We didn't have to put any of them out ourselves. Two came out on Homestead, which was an um, uh, indie that started in the mid-'80s and was fairly influential, but I would mm -hmm. say not didn't sell a lot of records. Uh, but it did get us to... It gave us the potential to have a national audience, we had a small following. I don't think we really were that big. We had a third album that came out after we broke up on a local label. Uh, but that was, um, you know, our goal was to make records and write songs and perform them and then go out and play them live. And that's what we were able to do. So I feel like it was a successful band. And we did get to tour the country a bit. Uh, once we got west of Kansas City, though, it was like no one had heard of us when we went to the West Coast. <laughs> the Wild Frontier. It was it was dreadful. It was really a band that had a following in the East mm -hmm. and in the Midwest. We used to play the Midwest because we lived in Central sure. Illinois and could, you know, basically range from you know Minneapolis on one direction to like Cleveland and Cincinnati and the other. So we're playing St. Louis and Columbia, Missouri and Iowa City and. Places like that, mm -hmm. Madison. A lot of college towns. A lot of college towns. Yep. So you look back on your time in The Outnumbered and you're like, I accomplished what I set out to accomplish there. Yeah, I mean, we always hoped that things would get, you know, that things would snowball and get bigger. I mean, the, the bands that we looked up to as kind of models for how you succeed were people like, the Replacements and R.E.M. and Husker Du. And those were bands that ended up on major labels after becoming popular on an indie. And mm -hmm. we never got that popular <laughs> on an indie. Uh, but that was the hope, that we could get to that stage. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen for a number of reasons that are just, you know, beyond the music. Uh, but... You know, I felt like it was a successful band. A lot of people toil for years and don't really get to release anything. Mm -hmm. That's true. Uh, so, I totally lost my train of thought. Hold on. I get it back. Here it comes. All right. Yes, I have it. So, what was it like, the process? Was it like some big blowout or was it like a soft ending to the band? Like, how did that conversation, how did that play out? It was a soft ending because we realized that the band lasted five years. That's a long time. Absolutely, especially at that age. Yeah. 
And we realized at a certain point, so we put out our first album, sold a certain amount of records. Actually, I remember, 2,200. <laughs> Second album didn't sell that many. It sold about 1,400, and we thought, that's bad. We did not gain on mm-hmm. our second record. And when we went to make a third record, our label didn't want to do it. Um, and then we broke up, and we thought, well, it's not going to come out. But eventually it, it did. And you know, we're pleased about that. But that record really didn't get distributed at all. Um, it's pretty rare. So um, if it wasn't for Pansy Division coming along, I don't know how much interest there would have been in the Outnumbered. Mm-hmm. But the Outnumbered... So what... What had started to happen in the 80s was that there started to be more labels. And in Champaign-Urbana, there was a label called Parasol. And uh, Parasol ended up putting out an outnumbered compilation in the late 90s, a CD comp. Uh, That probably wouldn't have happened if I hadn't continued to be in bands. Um, What was nice about the... uh, the end of the outnumbered was that we all kind of agreed that it was not going anywhere. And, you know, at that point I was four years out of school and I'm thinking, why do I want to stay in Champaign where I get older every year and most other people don't? (laughs) And I thought I really need to go somewhere else. And I, because I grew up in Illinois, Chicago was the next stop. Except we had the hottest summer and the coldest winter that I'd ever lived through. And I thought, (laughs) not everybody has to live with this. So I ended up moving to Los Angeles and then ended up in San Francisco less than a year later. That was 88, 89. And then, so correct me if I'm wrong, but Pansy Division starts pretty soon thereafter, right? I moved Before I moved to California, I'd sold all my equipment. I moved out there with one guitar... And um, John is an author. I'm sitting here with the book Deflowered, okay? And um, he and I have a disagreement about what he wrote in the book because I vividly <laughs> remember sitting in a backyard in Urbana with John saying, I need, to, I need to move to California and form a gay punk band. I had the idea, but I also thought it was unrealistic. Yeah. So I moved out there and I'd, I sold my amp. I had four guitars. I sold three of them. And when I moved to California, I eventually sold the fourth one out there. I thought, I'm not going to be in a band. But at the same time, I do remember thinking, well, and I wrote about this in my book. So I put out a book in 2009, which is my history of Pansy Division, Mm -hmm. my memoir, called Deflowered, My Life in Pansy Division. And I was... Real solid title, by the way. I love that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It nails it. (laughs) But I uh, I had gotten there with the idea... I mean, I had, when I was in Champaign, I still had the idea that if I ever had a band again, I'd do a gay rock band. But I knew so few gay people that were into rock music that I thought, what's the point of having a band for an audience of five? So I thought, I'm never going to do that. So that's one reason I got rid of all my and when I, of my guitars. And then when I moved, I thought, oh, well, it's great to be in a band in Champaign, Illinois, because it's cheap to live there. You can have a get a cheap old house and have a basement where which is your rehearsal space when i moved to california everything was expensive Mm -hmm. people didn't really have basements and the everything was so much more expensive i thought well you know i tried and i sort of succeeded so i'm going to be satisfied with that but after i'd lived there for about a year and a half 
that whole time, ever since I came up with the idea for a gay band, I thought, well, there's plenty of gay people in music, and it seemed like the only ones who were out were people who did dance music or did show tunes. And neither of those categories interested me very much. And yeah. I thought, Look, when are looking rock for people? role models of bands for you at that point was like, well, doesn't exist. Yeah, the closest you get is like androgyny, right? You're like, uh, yeah, I guess like maybe Lou Reed sometimes, maybe Bowie. You yeah. know, he said he was bi, but he's been married this whole time. He's had a career mm-hmm. and has kids. <laughs> so I thought it's not something that's going to happen. But eventually, some people are going to come out and. And, and I mean, we had a list of people who we suspected were gay, and almost all of them came out later. So, but a lot of them did not come out until after we had come out with Pansy Division. But don't let me get ahead of the story. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was in uh, San Francisco working for Rough Trade Records and distribution. I was a sales rep. I was calling stores all over the western half of the country, and selling what we had and it was a great job and I got to talk to people in stores about what was selling and um, there started to be all these records that seemed to reference gay stuff but they seemed to be coming from straight people and there were people who I suspected were gay who weren't singing about it and I I thought I'm waiting for something to come along and I'm actively looking for it and then I realized I'm waiting for something that isn't going to happen unless I do it myself. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe in San Francisco I could form a gay band and have some success with it, but it also meant finding other gay musicians. And because I wasn't playing guitar trying to form a band, I didn't know anybody except some people at Rough Trade. So I put an ad in the paper and I found the bass player right away who's still in the band. That was a very fortunate meeting and I just knew right away he Chris Freeman he was mm-hmm. going to be the right guy but we had so much trouble finding a drummer of any sort straight gay whatever I wanted an all gay <laughs> band but I realized pretty quick that the drummer thing was going to be an issue so we had some gay drummers some not gay drummers um, but as soon as we formed the band and again I'd done demo to play to people and and that worked well so as soon as we formed the band, we, we became popular in San Francisco very fast. Mm-hmm. And I suspected that what was going to happen with the band was we might get big enough to make records, and they would sell in about six cities. We would have L.A. and San Francisco. We'd have New York and Chicago and, you know, I don't know, Houston and Toronto, wherever mm-hmm. there's a big mm-hmm. gay scene. Sure. And I figured we'd be huge in those places and nowhere else would people care at all. And that is exactly the opposite of what happened. <laughs> so that was, again, getting ahead. But when, we, when I formed the band, I thought, none of these people will come out. I'm out, and I have nothing to lose. I'm not trying to make my career in music. I already did that. So now I'm doing something just because I want to see it exist. But I do think it has a certain amount of commercial potential, but not a lot. So when we did a demo, the demo sounded pretty good, but we weren't really good live for a while. And uh, But eventually we had a few label offers, and we ended up on Lookout Records in Berkeley, whose claim to fame at that point had been putting out 
the first two Green Day albums. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Operation Ivy, mm-hmm. who I saw. So they played so few shows. I got to see them. I thought, what the hell is this? It was so goofy. <laughs> I did not get it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, I, I, you know, it's, it's weird when you see a band and you say, like, you could see Green Day and think they're going to be huge. Mm-hmm. I saw Op Ivy <laughs> and thought, this is just goofy shit. <laughs> um, so I was wrong. But it's the great white whale for Riot Fest, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. They're going to get yeah. them someday, maybe. Yeah, someday. If not. they ever play, that's <laughs> where they'll, they'll play. Well, let me ask you a question like, um, you know, for the outnumbered, you did a lot of energetic pop pop punk songs, maybe some vague lyrics in there and, and so on. Nothing more than vague. Yeah, vague. <laughs> um, but I mean, Pansy Division songs, completely different. So was there things you were doing the, 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 when you were playing in the outnumber were the things like i want to do this but i can't well i realized in the outnumbered that i was the only gay guy in the band and that even though i was the main songwriter it was a band it mm-hmm. wasn't my project mm-hmm. i may have instigated it but you know i didn't see it as being my backing band and i thought if i pull a uh like Singing all this gay stuff would, I think, have not been representative of the whole band. Mm -hmm. And I would have felt like it would have been a power move. And then they would have had to explain it. Even though everybody in the band was cool about me being gay, that was, you know, an entry-level question. But I thought that if uh, I sang a gay song, overtly gay song in that band, that it just wouldn't, it it just wouldn't make sense in that context. Mm -hmm. Um. So then, so, but I, but there are veiled references, which some people heard and actually wrote us letters about, which I thought, hmm, maybe it's not as veiled as I thought it was, mm-hmm. but there was no, but it wasn't explicit about being gay. And I wasn't afraid to be out. I just didn't want to have the rest of the band have to deal with that mm-hmm. yeah. at that time, which was, you know, mid to late eighties, you know, AIDS crisis was in mm-hmm. full mode full-blown aids mode Mm -hmm. so i thought i just can't it was too controversial um do you what excuse me not do rather what do you think uh the biggest thing you took from the outnumbered and brought to pansy division was like what was your biggest learning from there that you incorporated i understood what the indie scene was like and the touring scene was like and you know how to promote yourself and like what went wrong with the outnumbered was Mm -hmm. that you know, it, it hurt being in central Illinois. It's like, I think we could have gotten to be better known if we lived in New York or Boston. Mm-hmm, sure. Um, or even Chicago. Or even Chicago, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I mean, I just, between college radio and having the outnumbered, I learned a lot about how the indie scene functioned. And as it got more, as it got bigger and bigger into the 90s, um, I could see that it that there was more potential than there used to be. But again, I didn't form Pansy Division to be a commercial success. I formed it to be an artistic expression. So it was timing. And timing is something that you have no control over. So we came along at the right time. Mm-hmm. And there were other gay bands who came along at the same time who didn't succeed as much as we did, but were also out there. But... It helped being on lookout, and then 
we did our first album in 93, Undressed, and we did a national tour, played for three weeks, coast to coast, and it went pretty damn well. We came home with money, and we thought, we've connected with people out there in Columbia, South Carolina, and... That has to be an amazing feeling. Yeah, it really was. And we were getting letters from all over the place. How, how did you end up on Lookout? I mean, was it through working at Rough Trade or no. where you were hanging out? Or Well, I knew from working at Rough Trade that people were actually buying Lookout records. Mm-hmm. But we were just trying to find a label that would be honest with us. Because we had been on Homestead, and the guy who the people who ran Homestead were cool. The people who owned the distribution that distributed Homestead were crooked. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be involved with them. But the uh, the thing for us was we want a label that will be honest in their dealings with us and honest mm-hmm. about money. And um, I had three labels narrowed down, Alternative Tentacles, Lookout mm-hmm. Records, and Bar None Records. I knew Glenn Morrow, the guy who ran Bar None mm-hmm. Records, because he had this obscure band called Rage to Live, and he'd been in a better-known band called The Individuals in Mm -hmm. Jersey in the 80s. And I thought that these were the labels that would want us. And eventually they all did, but Lookout was the only one who could release our record right away. They could do it right then. It was getting to be the fall of 92, and we had a single we wanted out by Christmas because it had a Christmas song on it. <laughs> and it's one of our best songs, Homo Christmas. <laughs> and then the album came out in March. And we didn't really know who to pick out of the labels that were interested. And that turned out to be the right choice in a way we could have mm-hmm. never predicted. Because what happened was the first record did well enough on its own. But the year after is when Green Day got signed to Reprise and then got popular pretty fast. And their way of showing their values was to have the bands from their old label open for them, and a number of them did. But we got uh, placed on a couple of tours that were really amazing. So we played with them in July and August of of, um, 94 when they had booked this tour... In the six weeks between the booking of the tour and the shows, they had exploded in popularity and everything was sold out. Then they went to Europe. We were disappointed. They didn't take us. <laughs> but when they came back, they were playing arenas and they had us open for them. That's amazing. And our second record had just come out in, in th- that June. And we thought, and we didn't have a drummer. So we had done the drummer. The drumming had been done by a friend of ours who was not going to join our band. So we were looking for a drummer. We thought, oh, well, we're going to go on tour in the fall. Suddenly it was the beginning of June and Green Day are like, you want to come out on tour this next month? And we're like, oh, hell. We, <laughs> yes. Yes. We're saying yes. <laughs> Where are we going to find a drummer? <laughs> we found an inadequate drummer who turned out to be a jerk. And we toured with him for the first part of that summer. And then we got rid of him. Did not go well. He didn't play well. He was a jerk. And then in the fall, we desperately wanted Danny Panic from Screeching Weasel to play with us. And, um, and he agreed to do the tour, but he wouldn't join our band. But he did the Green Day Arena tour, and he was, he's a fantastic drummer. And he, um, 
you know, did it despite the fact that the band leader Screeching Weasel, who I will not name, hated us <laughs> and, and didn't want him to do it. So, um, you know, I'm very pleased that he did it. So that really helped. And that really got our career going because suddenly we went from scattered gay teens all over the country writing to us mm-hmm. to having tens of thousands of gay teens. And it was mostly, or tens, I'm sorry, tens of thousands of teens few of whom were gay, um, watching us open every night. And we went over pretty well. It was always a mixed bag, but we went over pretty well. That kind of break is something that never happened again, mm-hmm. you know, but it made our band. And for a few years, it gave us all these extra fans that we never would have had uh, without that exposure. And it was just a great experience. And the rewarding part of it was that we had stuck to our guns and done it as absolutely uncommercially as we wanted to. But at the same time, our songs had pop hooks and were mm-hmm. catchy. So when we played them in front of the Green Day audience, they responded to that. But some of the people booed because they did <laughs> not like the openly gay lyrics, some of which were explicit. And I don't think I would have written such explicit (laughs) lyrics if I thought our audience was going to be teenagers. (laughs) But once we were there, I thought, we are not censoring ourselves. Yeah. Because in this country, and you're growing up, how do you get the, you know, before the internet, how do you get the facts about what gay people are like? Yeah. You You get homophobia, you just get innuendo. And here we were, and we were talking directly to kids, which really pissed off uh, some parents who were bringing their kids to the shows, and some promoters who tried to get us thrown off the bill. And Green Day always stood up for us. And um, I will always... They treated us so well that, you know, it was a life-changing experience. That's 1994. After 1994, we only played with them twice. During that tour, we never played the Bay Area, our home area. So we played a couple shows with them in uh, Oakland in 95. And we had never played with them again, but, you know, we always hold them in very high esteem. Yeah. And it really changed our lives. So it also gave us extra sales that we weren't expecting. So we were able to make a living off of our band for about five years. And playing, you know... Launching a band like that and thinking it's going to be a career and that we can make a living off of it, that was unbelievable. <laughs> you would have never thought that. Never thought that. It. Didn't last. But we have been able to carry on the band since then, and we've made uh, nine albums plus a best of, and we managed to do it more or less full-time um, until about 2000, well, not full-time, but we all lived in California till 2008, and then we all scattered around the country. Since then, uh, we've only done one album since that happened, and it's really hard to be a band at long distance. So yeah. now we just play shows, the occasional show, because there's no shows without airfares. So we don't mm-hmm. play yeah. cheap little shows anymore. It has to be a bigger deal or we can't do it. And we all have jobs that take up our lives and... Um, I'm the only single person in the band, so the other guys all have long-term relationships. So, you know, it, it, it makes things harder to do. But, um, but we still have fans, um, a core following. 
but it's definitely a cult following at this point. For our uh, Chicago fans, uh, 94 was uh, Green Day at the Aragon with you guys opening. Yes, and it was filmed for MTV. So if, if you're old enough to remember the concert that MTV aired of Green Day, um, that was on the tour that we played with them. And at the very end of that uh, uh, program, over the credits... They have a clip of Green Day in their van singing one of our songs, <laughs> which is which we didn't know existed. So that was thrilling. Yeah. Um, so you're you're seeing these songs and you're very out and very proud of of being gay. Um, did you ever have a fear of how people were going to react to that, or do you ever have a fear that people were like, "Oh, they're not being genuine. This just feels like very kitschy and not like authentic." I didn't care. Um, the fact that we used humor as the band did lead some people to not take us seriously. Um, I, I felt like uh, I had nothing to lose by being blunt. And I felt... Well, one of the things I did when I moved to San Francisco, there is a gay activist group called ACT UP. Mm-hmm. ACT UP was leading the fight for trying to find um, drugs that would cure AIDS and the government during the Reagan era was completely disinterested in doing that. Mm -hmm. So there were all these protests. And when I moved to San Francisco in 89, I joined them. And one of the things I learned from being involved with that activism was that you get these activists out there who are taking what might seem like extreme positions to quote unquote regular people but that was what we needed to save lives. So we were out there demanding these things. Politicians do not want to risk their necks by being the ones to to do that. But if you've got people over here who are pushing the envelope, it gives other people, like politicians who are sympathetic but don't want to be too far out front, gives them the possibility for for, you know, to follow you and take positions that suddenly don't seem as extreme. And one of the things that I applied to Pansy Division was that, oh, we can sing about whatever we want, however we want to, and it will create space that for the next person who comes along, mm-hmm. it's going to be, um, it's going to, it won't be seen as being yeah, so it's, extreme. It's safer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the most, incredible things and powerful things about music is when you find people that make you feel like you fit in somewhere. I mean, you know, you're in, in, maybe in your normal life, it's like everybody's not like you, but you can find like-minded people in music. And so when you hear from some of those people that are like, Hey, you know, John Pansy Division has 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 given me this special thing. Uh, you know, I'm sure that has to be an incredible thing for you. I mean, it was very fulfilling. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine a band having been more right fulfilling. Yeah, the fact that we actually made a living off of it. But l- I I want to talk about some numbers here. So during the years that Pansy Division was at its most successful. I was making $20,000 a year, but I didn't have to work for anybody else. Mm -hmm. 
and that was when my rent was $350, $400 a month. I actually saved some money those years, making twenty grand a year. Amazing. So, again, we're talking about a completely different world yeah. than today. Yeah. That's in San Francisco. And that was in San Francisco, <laughs> right? yeah. You can't even get a bathroom in San Francisco for $300 now. No. Yeah. Um, no. So, there's this real clear like DIY line through your time in the Outnumbered and your time in Pansy Division. How do you feel about, um, was it like very intentional? I'm sure it was. And, and like, how do you feel about these bands now? Like we were talking about that book sellout by Dan Ozzy, which talks a lot about lookout records and, and green day coming up and putting out Dookie. Uh, do you feel like the music narrative has shifted so much now that like, it's okay to have your music play in advertisements and things like that. Do you, are you like, Oh, I'm okay with that now. Or are you still like staunchly in defiance of that? Um, I actually was never against it, but it depends on who. So is Coca-Cola going to use your ad? You know, how is it going to be displayed? Um, We've had more, not being in commercials, but we've had our songs be in TV shows uh, a few times. And, you know, that I think is an appropriate use for them. Um, but yeah, things have really shifted. We made a lot of money off of CD sales in the 90s. Mm-hmm. That ended. So now we get a trickle from Spotify. I have to say, though, as much as Spotify gets crap for how little they pay, they pay more than others. We get more streaming income from Spotify than anywhere else. Um, but I mean, I'm talking about a couple thousand dollars a year. Sure. It's not a living. And it's, you know, a legacy of having been active, an right. active band for decades. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You put in your time. Yeah. But you know, on the other hand, I really like this new band, Wet Leg, and mm-hmm. they, you know, they're just getting so many people listening to them that they probably are making a decent amount of money from streaming. But they're also touring, and you know, I think they're actually selling records. So you know, it, it's. It's not impossible, but I think fewer people um, make can make a living at it than they used to. The thing is, we were lucky that we maintained our digital rights. We signed all of our contracts before digital came along, so we kept the rights. So that's part of the reason we have more income. We don't have to split it with our label or distribute. That's very nice. So it's not a lot, but it's it. We get a hundred percent. It's enough that like when you get that check in the mail, you're like, oh yeah, okay, that's nice. Yeah, except it's not a check; it no. just gets deposited All directly. Right, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as as you know, basically the pioneer in 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 you know Pansy Division. What came after it that you're like? I'm so proud that we contributed to that. I wish that I liked the the pop music of today more. But there's so many people that are out who have no idea that we were part of the stepping stone for them to get there. And that's to be expected. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm glad that we have out gay pop stars, even if I don't really like their records. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, my last question about Pansy Division, then we can get to some Chicago questions, is uh, do you have a, an album of yours that you feel like got the closest to doing what you were trying to achieve sonically, a.k.a. what's your favorite album of yours you put out? <laughs> you know, the band did evolve, um, and 
what I think the biggest evolution came when we added a second guitar player, because I'm a pretty basic guitar player, and it was a three-piece band. I wanted to keep it simple because I wanted the words to be heard. I, I wanted the music to be simple. I wanted the message to be clear. But when we got Patrick Goodwin to join our band in 97, uh, we ended up doing a record, one of the two records we did with Albini. We did um, our album Absurd Pop Song Romance, and we recorded it there at the beginning of 98. It came out in the fall. And I think that is our great achievement. It's also the album where we dialed back the humor a lot. There wasn't as much of it. It wasn't completely gone. Um, and I think it's our best collection of songs. I think it's our best playing. Um, although I have to say, so this is, a, bands have votes. And within <laughs> our band, there was all this vote to have like little skits in between some of the songs like rap records did. And I create, we, I did, I, I agreed to some of it, but some of it I have just never liked. So if you take out those little skits, mm-hmm. I love that record from, <laughs> end, from end to end. And, um, it's our longest album. It's 53 minutes, but it was from the most fertile time of our band and what's sad about it is it came in, out in 98, and it was a little late to catch what could have made our band have an expanded audience. Because sure. it's, you know, it's a less punk-sounding album. It has a mm-hmm. few songs that have a punk sound, but it's more of an indie rock record. And I think it is a lot more colorful than some of our other records in terms of the variety of sound, and it seems to be a lot of people's favorite album. So Absurd Pop Song Romance, which was the last record we did for Lookout, it, you know, sold disappointingly. It was our thought that this will reach people beyond the people who already know us. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like I said earlier, timing is everything. And we found the right drummer, but we didn't find him till 97. And again, that was, he's still with us 25 years later, but I, and you know, he would have been very young if he had joined us when we needed a drummer in 94 yeah. mm-hmm. and he was, wasn't living in our city. Uh, but you know, if we had, he had joined us when he was 18, uh, he might not have been as good as he was when he <laughs> sure, joined at 22. Sure. Right. But timing has a lot to do with a lot of things. Uh, that's true. Uh, so you didn't Tommy Stinson him, is what you're saying. You didn't get like a <laughs> no, we didn't. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we like to ask people Chicago questions. This is a Chicago podcast, yes. so feel free to add as much or as little context to any of these answers as you like. Okay. Okay. Um, I know you were really excited about this one from having talked to you earlier. Yes. Uh, thick slash deep dish pizza versus thin crust tavern style. What's your preference? I was a weird kid. I didn't like pizza until I was about fourteen. And um, I like the deep dish pizza. I used to listen to, I used to be a Cubs fan. I used to be a baseball fan. <clears throat> we all make mistakes. Mark's upset. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I threw out baseball recently. We could have a podcast on that. I have retired. <laughs> That's from, part two. I have retired from being a baseball okay. fan. But I used to always hear the commercials for Chicago pizzerias on WGN. 
And when I finally had a chance to come up here, I didn't like any of them. <laughs> I like Giordano's. That's the one I like in Chicago. Um, in Champaign, there's this great pizza restaurant called Papadell's. Yes. And I just ate there last night, and it's the greatest pizza ever. It it's, is. It's a, it's a pan pizza. It, yes. It's as good as you remembered it. Yeah. Oh. There's one place in San Francisco that's as good, but it took years to find one, so... That's my pizza. We won't story. ask you for that. We want to keep it under wraps for you. <laughs> uh, so having been in Champagne and coming back and forth to Chicago over the years, both like playing shows here and, and just going to shows, do you have a, a favorite venue to see shows at? And do you have a favorite venue to play at here? The Outnumbered used to play a couple of places in particular that we liked. The um, best was the Cubby Bear. Uh, but we also played a lot at this club on Armitage that I don't think is around anymore called the West End. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think as many people went to the West End. But it was a place, it was a nice club that we liked to play. Um, Pansy Division, we're lucky to actually headline the Metro a few times. But we didn't draw enough people to enable that to continue. But they gave us a, you know, a really good chance. And that was really awesome to headline the Metro. Yeah, that's a great spot. Um, but we used to play lounge acts, and we used to play the Fireside Bowl. Mm, love yes. the Fireside, yes. And I'd love to be able to come to town and play two shows, because Chicago is one of our best towns. First time we ever played here, we played the Czar Bar, if anybody remembers that. I'm told it's long gone. That was 93. But we played, we'd come here every year, and we'd play, sometimes you come here twice a year, and we'd play an all-ages show at fireside and then we'd play uh the lounge acts and um and i always loved coming to chicago um that was uh, pansy division has five cities that we love and that's um austin new york um vancouver toronto and chicago those are all except for our hometown san francisco those from the beginning, were always the best ones. Uh, why? What makes Chicago so unique? Like, what makes it stand out in your mind as like a pansy division stronghold? Yeah, it's it's hard to say, but I think is the ability to have all ages shows, all ages shows, and to play the twenty one up shows. So some people don't want to go to the underage shows, even though you could get a drink at the Fireside mm-hmm. Bowl. But the Fireside Bowl was a dump, so it was, <laughs> yes. I mean, I loved it as a dump. Yeah, the it most looked dumpy. horrible, yeah. but they actually had great sound people and a great PA, and you could go drink in the front bar if you wanted to, but not everybody liked to go there. But Lounge Axe was a great club, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Sue Miller was a great booker, and I haven't seen her in years, but, you know, she was really supportive of us, and, you know, I have really fond memories of those days last time we played here we played at sub subterranea yeah, subterranean yeah yep. it's a great spot um, were you upstairs or downstairs? Or no i'm sorry we last time we played uh gas bars oh uh, okay which the outnumbered used to play also uh what do you think makes chicago a unique music town or like when you think of it like what makes it stand out to you i've lived in california for over 30 years and i think that people who grew up in california have never lived anywhere else don't understand this country. So I encounter people who, I'm a liberal guy, I encounter people who are liberal who do not understand different places. I mean, <laughs> Chicago is a blue city, but it's 
you know, this used to be a red state. It's not anymore because Chicago's become more liberal. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, I mean, I feel like Pansy Division is a really down-to-earth band. I've always felt like Chicago's a down-to-earth city. Uh, The fact that it's big and has, you know, and we have multiple places where you can play, that's about as good as I can do. I can't really explain. No, I think that's a good explanation right there. Well, I just love the fact that you're describing Pansy Division as a down-to-earth band. (laughs) Yeah, I think we are very down-to-earth. Even I mean, I think we are honest and down-to-earth. Yes. um, As opposed to trying to pull off this Mm -hmm. kind of um, artsy persona, Mm -hmm. which can Mm -hmm. be really fun. I like Nick Cave, but you know, it's we're going for something as more down-to-earth. And that's to me the Midwestern yeah. part of me, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. That yes. I think I yeah bring with me or yeah. You, I, live. I mean, you, 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 I mean, going to California and forming a, a gay, independent punk rock band, you brought a lot of the Midwest there. And you know, I wonder because you know, I thought about moving to Chicago, and I think, what if I had moved here? Mm-hmm. Would I have had? Would I have? been able to start that band that I had the mm-hmm. idea of here or would it have not felt comfortable to me I don't mm-hmm. know yeah. the thing is I am I have never really gone to gay bars in Chicago and this is kind of getting off the subject a little bit but I have just spent the weekend with a lot of the, my old college friends from the early 80s in Champaign and what's amazing about them and I'm talking about dozens of people a hundred percent heterosexual. So I came from a music scene mm-hmm. that did not overlap with the gay scene. So coming here and being a gay person, I don't know how different that would have been for me. Sure. That's a, that's a very interesting perspective on it for sure. Uh, so just a couple more questions. Uh, what have you been listening to lately? You know, I have been listening. I spent the the last year um, listening more than anyone else to this band from England, this very obscure band called The Cleaners from Venus, led by a singer-songwriter named Martin Newell. He's been doing these, basically recording at home since 1980. And uh, he's... Uh, made professional sounding records. He's made kind of at home sounding records. Um, I think the best comparison is XTC. A lot of times he has that same kind of classic, classic sixties kind of influence, but it, you know, it is, it's very jangly, Mm -hmm. but he also has very clever lyrics and, uh, you know, there's 20 albums or so that you can go back and revisit. He cranks them out. Not as often, not as much as Guided by Voices, but... Nobody's on that level. But there is a comparison <laughs> mm-hmm. to be made there. Yeah. Um, but uh, I really like this band, Lithics, who are from Portland, who are on a Chicago label, Trouble in Mind. Um, they have this song called Hands. That was my favorite song of 2020. It's like a gang of four sonic youth collision. It's fantastic. Mm. Nice. Um, I really like Fontaine's DC. I'm looking forward to their new album. I'm actually going to get my phone out and look at my Spotify playlist because I make Spotify lists that I share with people and I make a um, 
uh, a favorites list every year so I can go back and remember what I listened to that year Mm -hmm. and what my favorites are. So I'm going to just open it up here and read um, some of my favorites from the past year because it's so hard to remember them all at one time. So last year, the, the people who made my list were Yola, Shannon and the Clams, Aaron Fraser, Wet Leg, this obscure Welsh band called The Bug Club, who I think have an album out now, who are just really goofy and fun. And I feel like there's so much music today that is no fun, mm-hmm. and not in a Stooges way. <laughs> um, I really like um, some songs off the new Sea Power album, formerly uh, British Sea Power. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Um, I, I like some alt-country stuff. Uh, this uh, singer Lydia Loveless, mm-hmm. who I've seen. Yep. Um, I also like a lot of North African stuff that is sort of called Tuareg blues. People like Imarhan and Mdu Mokhtar and uh, Nora Mint Somali and uh, who else? Uh, Bambino, Bambino. Mm, Bambino, yep. Um, there uh, and this band who I can't pronounce French or whatever their language is. It's Letron or Etron Delaire, who are my new favorite. Nice. Um, I learned from. Bruce Novak of this enterprise, the band Flying Colors from Australia. Mm-hmm. There's also a great band from Australia called RVG, the Romy, uh, Romy Vager group, who is a great transgender singer-songwriter. They have two records out in Australia. I've not seen them, though. Um, the last Billy Bragg album's pretty good. I don't always like them, but I thought the last one was good. And I like a lot of jangly indie pop, like uh, the band Smokescreens, who are on um, uh, Slumberland. Another band called Chime School, who yeah, are on Slumberland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great, great band. And a Canadian band called Ducks Limited, who yes. have a wedding yes, present yes. type sound. I also <laughs> love Margot Price, yes. who I don't think gets enough recognition. I've seen her perform. I just love her so much. Um, and looking down the rest of my list... Like weird stuff like Squid, if you've heard yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yep. saw them last year before I went into hiding for Omicron. And I thought their album was okay, but I loved it live. Um, I was really impressed. If you like Squid, you should check out uh, Black Country, New Road. I don't get into them. Really? I oh, haven't man. figured it out. Black Midi, either. I don't yeah. like them as well. And then um, I sometimes am into Sleaford Mods and... Um, Amel and the Sniffers. Mm -hmm. And I like this band who kind of sound like The Fall from England. I'm a big Fall fan. Uh, This band called The Cool Greenhouse, who um, have not had anything out in this country. And I vote for the Dry Cleaning album. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a great album. Bruce loves that, too. They're going on tour with uh, Fake Fruit, who will be coming up on this podcast. Dry Cleaning played in San Francisco, and it sold out the the minute it went on sale. (laughs) It's like... I have, it always puzzles me like which bands get huge without me hearing about them. So mm-hmm. that's my, uh, people that's need my to be following list. John Ginoli. I mean, he's yeah. up on the music. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say. Yeah. No, I, honestly, I used to work at a great record store, Amoeba yeah. Music in San yes. Francisco. I bought some records online from them. And after I quit working there, I just really lost track of what was new. So for the past 10 years, I have, you know, been diligently scouring things online mm-hmm. and I used to download a lot of stuff. Now I stream it all and um, try to keep up with what's mm-hmm. new and I make lists of things and 
I don't buy as many records as I used to. I, I remember when CDs came out and CDs were expensive and LPs were cheaper. Right. Now that it's switched, it. I yeah. just buy CDs. <laughs> Uh, our last question to you, um, and first before we do this, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's been fun. Uh, is, uh, you, you've seen us drinking High Life. We're big fans of cheap drinks. So, like, what's your go-to cheap drink? I'm not much of a drinker. We run into I these. I can't answer that. What about an N.A.? Do you have, like, a, like I want no. a Diet Coke over anything? No? no, I mean, I drink a little whiskey. I drink a little bourbon. Um, I don't really drink beer. I drink some wine. Mm-hmm. I like Pinot Noir. I, okay, uh, oh, cheap cheap drinks would be the wine section at Trader Joe's. There you go, <laughs> three buck chuck. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the last thing I want to say is: is there anything you'd like to plug on your way well, out he, of here? He's got some stuff coming up. So yeah, we need so to talk tell us about all about that. that. Well, we have shows coming up, and they're nowhere yeah. near Chicago. No, but we're playing in. Um, we reach we reach a, a worldwide that's audience. True. Yeah. So um, we're playing three shows in California, end of June, early July. Palm Springs, Los Angeles, and Oakland. In Oakland, we're opening for Bikini Kill at the DIY festival called the Mosswood Meltdown. Used to be called the Burger Boogaloo before uh, Burger Records imploded. And um, I'm thrilled to be opening for Bikini Kill. We got Mm -hmm. to do it 30 years ago. Yeah, We're doing it again. And uh, we're playing in New Orleans on Labor Day weekend for this big gay festival I've never been to called Southern Decadence. It's a hell of a time. All my new my NOLA peeps out there, make sure you check out Pansy Division while you're there. There you go. And we're playing this NOLA festival because there's all these people who are involved with this event now who listen to Pansy Division as teenagers and are thrilled to bring us. So that's exciting to yeah. have something I did 30 years ago still resonate with people. So... It's, it's amazing. It's, it's it's the reward. It really is the reward. And what's it going to take to get you to come back to Chicago to play? Um, Pansy Division has played 976 shows. Our goal is to get to 1,000. Mm-hmm. In 2020, we had four weekends planned where we're going to fly into different places and do three or four shows. Chicago is going to be in 21. So we've got like six of these that we need to do. I don't know how long it's going to take us mm-hmm. to do them, but we will get here. Okay. At least one more time. Awesome. Once we get to 1,000, we may stop. I hope not. We'll see. No. Yeah. Are you working on any music right now? Always, always diddling, playing around? The thing is, I, I went four years without writing a song when Trump was president. I wrote one song. Uh, I just didn't know what to do. I just felt like it was impossible to do anything that had an effect. But now I've been writing songs again. I don't think there'll be another Pansy Division record because we live so far apart. And we're on two coasts in four different cities. And the last time we did an album, um, album turned out all right, but I did not enjoy the process, and I will not do that again. <laughs> so I suspect I'll make my own record one of mm-hmm. these days. Hell yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, again, I just want to say thank you so much for yes. taking the time. Uh, it's it's been great a real pleasure. to be on. Thank this you. This has been so fun. Yeah. Thanks, All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. We are No Wristbands. We drink for free. Music, of course, has been provided by Merlin Wall. Please check them out on Spotify or on Bandcamp. Please also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at No Wristbands and check out our website at NoWristbands.com. 